Jonathan Swift, by William Makepeace Thackeray. A remarkable story is told by Scott, of Delaney, who interrupted Archbishop King and Swift in a conversation which left the prelate in tears, and from which Swift rushed away with marks of strong terror and agitation in his countenance, upon which the Archbishop said to Delaney, You have just met the most unhappy man on earth, but on the subject of his wretchedness you must never ask a question. The most unhappy man on earth, Miseramus, what a character of him! And at this time all the great wits of England had been at his feet. All Ireland had shouted after him, and worshipped him as a liberator, a savior, the greatest Irish patriot and citizen. Dean Drapier Bickerstaff Gulliver, the most famous statesman, and the greatest poets of his day, had applauded him, and done him homage, and at this time riding over to Bolingbroke from Ireland, he says, it is time for me to have done with the world, and so I would if I could get into a better before I was called into the best, and not die here in a rage, like a poisoned rat in a hole. We have spoken about the men, and Swift's behavior to them, and now it behoves us not to forget that there are certain other persons in the creation who had rather intimate relations with the great Dean. Two women whom he loved and injured are known by every reader of books so familiarly that if we had seen them, or if they had been relatives of our own, we scarcely could have known them better. Who hasn't in his mind an image of Stella? Who does not love her? Fair and tender creature, pure and affectionate heart. Boots it to you, now that you have been at rest for a hundred and twenty years, not divided in death from the cold heart which caused yours, whilst it beat such faithful pangs of love and grief, boots it to you now, that the whole world loves and deplores you? Scarce any man, I believe, ever thought of that grave, that did not cast a flower of pity on it, and write over it a sweet epitaph. Gentle lady, so lovely, so loving, so unhappy. You have had countless champions, millions of manly hearts mourning for you. From generation to generation we take up the fond tradition of your beauty, we watch and follow your tragedy, your bright morning love and purity, your constancy, your grief, your sweet martyrdom. We know your legend by heart. You are one of the saints of English story. And if Stella's love and innocence are charming to contemplate, I will say that in spite of ill usage, in spite of drawbacks, in spite of mysterious separation and union, of hope delayed and sickened heart, in the teeth of Vanessa, and that little episodical aberration which plunged swift into such woeful pitfalls and quagmires of amorous perplexity, in spite of the verdicts of most women, I believe, who, as far as my experience and conversation go, generally take Vanessa's part in the controversy, in spite of the tears which swift caused Stella to shed, and the rocks and barriers which fate and temper interposed, and which prevented the pure course of that true love from running smoothly, the brightest part of Swift's story, the pure star in that dark and tempestuous life of Swift's, is his love for Hester Johnson. It has been my business, professionally of course, to go through a deal of sentimental reading in my time, and to acquaint myself with lovemaking, as it has been described in various languages, and at various ages of the world, and I know of nothing more manly, more tender, more exquisitely touching, that some of these brief note written in what Swift calls his little language in his journal to Stella. He writes to her night and morning often. 
He never sends away a letter to her but he begins a new one on the same day. He can't bear to let go her kind little hand, as it were. He knows that she is thinking of him, and longing for him far away in Dublin yonder. He takes her letters from under his pillow and talks to them, familiarly, paternally, with fond epithets and pretty caresses, as he would to the sweet and artless creature who loved him. Stay, he writes one morning, it is the 14th of December, 1710, stay, I will answer some of your letter this morning in bed. Let me see. Come and appear, little letter. Here I am, says he, and what say you to Stella this morning fresh and fasting? And can Stella read this writing without hurting her dear eyes? He goes on, after more kind prattle and fond whispering. The dear eyes shine clearly upon him then, the good angel of his life is with him and blessing him. Ah, it was a hard fate that wrung from them so many tears, and stabbed pitilessly that pure and tender bosom. A hard fate, but would she have changed it? I have heard a woman say that she would have taken Swift's cruelty to have had his tenderness. He had a sort of worship for her whilst he wounded her. He speaks of her after she is gone, of her wit, of her kindness, of her grace, of her beauty, with a simple love and reverence that are indescribably touching, in contemplation of her goodness his hard heart melts into pathos, his cold rhyme kindles and glows into poetry, and he falls down on his knees, so to speak, before the angel whose life he had embittered, confesses, his own wretchedness and unworthiness, and adores her with cries of remorse and love. When on my sickly couch I lay, impatient both of night and day, and groaning in unmanly strains, called every power to ease my pains, then Stella ran to my relief, with cheerful face and inward grief, and though by heaven's severe decree she suffers hourly more than me, no cruel master could require from slaves employed for daily hire, what Stella, by her friendship warmed, with vigor and delight performed. Now, with a soft and silent tread, unheard she moves about my bed, my sinking spirits now supplies with cordials in her hands and eyes. Best pattern of true friends. Beware, you pay too dearly for your care if, while your tenderness secures my life, it must endanger yours, for such a fool was never found who pulled a palace to the ground, only to have the ruins made materials for a house decayed. One little triumph Stella had in her life, one dear little piece of injustice was performed in her favor, for which I confess, for my part, I can't help thanking fate and the dean. That other person was sacrificed to her, that, that young woman, who lived five doors from Dr. Swift's lodgings in Berry Street, and who flattered him, and made love to him in such an outrageous manner, Vanessa was thrown over. Swift did not keep Stella's letters to him in reply to those he wrote to her. He kept Bolingbrooks, and Popes, and Harleys, and Peterboroughs, but Stella, very carefully, the lives say, kept Swift's. Of course, that is the way of the world, and we cannot tell what her style was, or of what sort were the little letters which the doctor placed there at night, and bade to appear from under his pillow of a morning. But in letter four, of that famous collection he describes his lodging in Berry Street, where he has the first floor, a dining room and bedchamber, at eight shillings a week, and in letter Virgin Islands. He says he has visited a lady just come to town, whose name somehow is not mentioned, and in letter eight, 
He enters a query of Stella's, what do you mean that board's near me, that I dine with now and then? What the deuce? You know whom I have dined with every day since I left you, better than I do. Of course she does. Of course Swift has not the slightest idea of what she means. But in a few letters more it turns out that the doctor has been to dine gravely with a Miss Van Homeri, then that he has been to his neighbor, then that he has been unwell, and means to dine for the whole week with his neighbor. Stella was quite right in her previsions. She saw from the very first hint what was going to happen, and scented Vanessa in the air. The rival is at the dean's feet. The pupil and teacher are reading together, and drinking tea together, and going to prayers together, and learning Latin together, and conjugating amo, amas, amavi together. The little language is over for poor Stella. By the rule of grammar and the course of conjugation, doesn't amavi come after amo and amas? The loves of Cadenas and Vanessa you may peruse in Cadenas' own poem on the subject, and in poor Vanessa's vehement expostulatory verses and letters to him, she adores him, implores him, admires him, thinks him something godlike, and only prays to be admitted to lie at his feet. As they are bringing him home from church, those divine feet of Dr. Swift's are found pretty often in Vanessa's parlor. He likes to be admired and adored. He finds Miss Van Homeri to be a woman of great taste and spirit, and beauty and wit, and a fortune too. He sees her every day, he does not tell Stella about the business, until the impetuous Vanessa becomes too fond of him, until the doctor is quite frightened by the young woman's ardor, and confounded by her warmth. He wanted to marry neither of them, that I believe was the truth, but if he had not married Stella, Vanessa would have had him in spite of himself. When he went back to Ireland, his Ariadne, not content to remain in her isle, pursued the fugitive dean. In vain he protested, he vowed, he soothed, and bullied. The news of the dean's marriage with Stella at last came to her, and it killed her, she died of that passion. And when she died, and Stella heard that Swift had written beautifully regarding her, that doesn't surprise me, said Mrs. Stella for we all know the dean could write beautifully about a broomstick. A woman, a true woman. Would you have had one of them forgive the other? In a note in his biography, Scott says that his friend Dr. Tuke of Dublin has a lock of Stella's hair, enclosed in a paper by Swift, on which are written, in the dean's hand, the words, only a woman's hair. An instance, says Scott of the dean's desire to veil his feelings under the mask of cynical indifference. See the various notions of critics. Do those words indicate indifference or an attempt to hide feeling? Did you ever hear or read four words more pathetic? Only a woman's hair, only love, only fidelity, only purity, innocence, beauty, only the tenderest heart in the world stricken and wounded and passed away now out of reach of pangs of hope deferred, love insulted, and pitiless desertion, only that lock of hair left, and memory and remorse, for the guilty, lonely wretch, shuddering over the grave of his victim. And yet to have had so much love, he must have given some. Treasures of wit and wisdom, and tenderness, too, must that man have had locked up in the caverns of his gloomy heart and shone fitfully to one or two whom he took in there. But it was not good to visit that place.
People did not remain there long and suffered for having been there. He shrank away from all affections sooner or later. Stella and Vanessa both died near him and away from him. He had not heart enough to see them die. He broke from his fastest friend, Sheridan. He slunk away from his fondest admirer, Pope. His laugh jars on one's ear after seven score years. He was always alone, alone and gnashing in the darkness, except when Stella's sweet smile came and shone upon him. When that went, silence and utter night closed over him. An immense genius, an awful downfall and ruin. So great a man he seems to me, that thinking of him is like thinking of an empire falling. We have other great names to mention, none I think, however so great or so gloomy.